Welcome to the Benefits Executive Roundtable, hosted by Dorothy Koshu, President of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Dorothy is a nationally recognized benefits and compliance consultant and group health broker. Here, you'll listen to industry experts break down the latest news and trends in employee benefits, healthcare reform, regulations and compliance, all designed to empower executive decisions. I'm here with Robert Shelley. He's the founding principal of Leaf Health, which is a pharmaceutical consulting firm. You deal with a lot of, what, third-party administrators? and Yes, Dorothy, we do. Okay. Um, so what is your primary job when, when, when you consult with the, with the TPAs? What do you do for them? Sure. Uh, what we typically do at Leaf Health is we essentially quarterback and assist them with their pharmacy benefit strategy. Okay. And in the past, that would have been a simpler method of maybe looking at their pharmacy benefit manager arrangements and putting a, a keen uh, eye on how those arrangements are structured. But today, the pharmaceutical landscape is way more complex. Yes, it is. That's why I'm having you here on this podcast today, by the way, because right. all there has changed a little bit. Yeah, and so now we're fundamentally looking at um, how to tackle the different nuances of the benefits, in particular the higher cost specialty agents and the dynamic to which they're not necessarily all being processed under a traditional pharmacy benefit program, but rather under the medical benefit and the medical management side of a TPA, given the emergence of um, genetic based drugs and infusion-based drugs. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit. Um, everyone knows that the two highest cost items in a health plan are uh, facility costs and prescription drugs. So let's dive into your expertise here. How do we manage that cost? I mean, there are a lot of drivers that we're all familiar with in, in, in prescription drug expenses, you know, changes in utilization, cost of new drugs, obviously all the research and development that goes into that. Um, Obviously, some people just don't follow their drug protocols properly. Um, the high cost of specialty drugs. Recently, we're hearing more and more about delays of getting generic drugs to the market. What is it that can be done um, to control these situations and you know get an get a really a tight grip on on drug expenses? How can we do that? Yeah, I think that is uh, the the right question to be asking about how to best approach the management of these prescription drug programs, and it really comes down to where are these costs coming from? Are they coming from, so it's measurement initially. So, uh, and you don't want to, you know, belabor that, but you certainly want to understand, okay, where are, where, when you look at prescription drug data and you look at medical J code data, what is the balance on those expenses? And also what are you hearing from your customers? Um, and really it's, 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 the combination of those that at least sets the initial platform. So once you kind of know where these costs are coming from, then you have to say, okay, let's see what we need to do, for example, on the pharmacy benefit side of things. Mm-hmm. Number one, on a, as a baseline, how are the agreements structured? Do we have market best practices, whether it's under a fully transparent strategy or whether it's under the traditional contracting strategy? Um, and what I mean by that is, is some PBMs will literally pass, fundamentally pass all these costs on for a flat administration charge, and other PBMs will keep margin and differentially price on the cost of the drug from what is acquired at versus what it's reimbursed at, and 
that's how they are in turn are compensated. You first want to make sure that those agreements are structured as best practices and you're making sure you've got timely, good arrangements in place. And our recommendation is in the TBA spaces, you almost have to look at this annually because everything is fundamentally driven by the drug inflation component of the benefit. Anytime a drug price increases, say, 5 to 10% a year, that creates a little bit of margin in the network and a little bit of extra value that the PBM is probably retaining in their rebate agreements. So you, as the plan sponsor, as the TPA, have to chase that back down and get right. that back with line. And we will talk more about that in, in a moment. Sure. Um, so people that will be listening to this podcast, um, they might be employers, Sure. Uh, decision makers within the employers, the human resources department, not necessarily their TPAs. So they're relying on those TPAs to make sure that the best contracts are in play. Um, or in some cases, for example, in, in my situation, um, we have our own contracts as well with some of the PBMs. Um, but a lot of them rely on the TPA. So sure. are, are there any particular questions that, that you know, employers might need to ask um, or to be aware of about these contracts? Or is it just something that we allow the TPAs to just take care of? Right. And again, this is sort of step one. And yeah, the questions are, are, are fundamental pricing-based okay. questions. And the most important components of those, as is, has been the case traditionally, is really understanding the definitions of drugs and the buckets to which the reimbursement will be applied towards. So in other words, is a branded drug indeed a branded drug or does it include certain levels of generics? And if so, what are the what is the relative contribution in the terms of pricing and discounts? Okay. So the questions are still the same. Hey, what is what is a branded drug? What's a generic? When do I get a rebate on what? And under what what parameters for 30 days? 90 days, and, and now more than never, what's a specialty drug? Yeah. And, 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 yeah. Where, where does that qualify? So absolutely, those are the traditional questions. Okay. That they, they haven't really changed too much. Well, it's widely known that the United States is paying substantially more for prescription drugs than other nations. Sure. Uh, studies basically are looking at all kinds of contributing causes, you know, the fact that there's no central negotiating authority and... Um, there's greater ability to pay here in the United States and in some countries. There's the regulatory environment really doesn't do much to, to control this. Is there anything that can be done in the United States to address these cost differences? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think there's been a lot of movement in the administration, particularly under the health and human services side of um, administration of, of drug benefits under the Medicare programs, and in particular Medicare Part B um, where uh, Health and Human Secretary, Health and Human Health Secretary Alex Azar, has proposed, you know, this international pricing index of drugs, right, to get back. And then most recently, um, the House Speaker also proposed legislation of a similar tone that gets back to this international price index. Why is the United States paying so much more? And what they're basically looking at is putting a, 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 a one point X percent and indexing drug manufacturer prices to this international index. And clearly the, the manufacturer community and the associated lobbying effort is, is pretty, you know, pretty strong in pushing against that type of, mm -hmm. of, of work. So as you as a plan sponsor, as you kind of look at some of that gridlock, but at least now you're aware, um, there have been a couple of different approaches, right? One is 
well, let's send our folks across the border yeah. for treatment. Let's go to Canada, let's go to Mexico, <laughs> let's go here, let's go there, let's go anywhere exactly. other than the United States. Yeah. And, and for cer certain medications and certain facilities, you know, there have been some pretty credible um, alternatives there. And likewise, with the um, Canadian reimportation and some recent positions by, the, by our current administration, there's been some clarity on how the government, the current administration, is net positive on looking at some of these net reimportation opportunities, in particular from Canada. And so, again, as a planned sponsor, there are uh, developed programs that um, allow for some of this work. And the area that we're seeing the most interest in is probably under oral specialty medications. You know, generic drugs and our traditional, we're down to 10% of traditional branded drugs. There's some limited opportunity there, but really under oral specialty, there has been a lot of acute interest on what would it look like if we could bring some of these drugs in from Canada. And that's not to say there aren't risks throughout that entire strategy, but there are also, um, some savings opportunity right. theoretically. Yeah. Theoretically, yes, absolutely. Well, I pretty much, I tend to go against government regulation, but personally, I would say that this is one area that I would not mind government regulation in, in is uh, the regulation of, of, you know, drugs and, and getting more into this country and, you know, more availability to keep the prices down. I mean, it's all about competition and, and that sort of thing. Is this something that, I mean, as, as a consultant in your area, would you recommend government regulation here? Uh, to open that up? Mm -hmm. I think so. I think the challenge really comes down under safety um, and the concern specific to counterfeit and and there is some legitimate concerns on being able to ultimately track all the way down to the source suppliers. But those are those are those are problems that I believe could be resolved with some effort. Yeah. Um, I really do. Um, so my thought is, is similar to yours is, is you know, you, you can't leave that stone unturned right. without looking looking at those pieces. Um, For sure, absolutely. Um, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, most people taking drugs say they can afford their medical treatment, but one out of four say they have a difficult time affording their medications, their prescription drugs. How do we keep those people um, able to pay for these types of things? If their cost of drugs, you know, especially um, things like specialty drugs, but any type of drugs, just basic everyday antibiotics yes. or whatever. What can we do? Are there programs out there to help people with low incomes? I think I think you're asking the right question, and it's kind of the second part when you asked earlier on. Hey, what are things you can do? And I mm -hmm. jumped on the RX arrangements. That's great, step one. But really, this is getting into step two. How do you structure a benefit plan that addresses these um, income gaps mm -hmm. that in that individuals have and the ability to afford these medications because clearly if we are not treating with first-line Rx medications or prescription drugs, we're, we really run a high risk of having a high-cost claimant on our hands in one way, shape, or form. So the first thing is, is really looking at the design of the benefit and then number two, the, 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 the distribution strategy. Right. What, what, yeah, and 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 that's that's good. I, I was wondering though because something just popped into my head about the situations where you might hear about Walmart or Target or someone like that mm -hmm. offering an eight dollar drug. Um, I don't think people realize that when they do that, those are actually manufacturers' coupons and manufacturers' costs. So when you do that, it's actually not going through your drug plan. It's actually Correct. being paid for by the manufacturer itself. So I would 
think, I mean, if I were a plan sponsor and I were self-insured, I would encourage my employees when those are available to you to take those because, A, it's keeping the money out of the expense out of your plan, which a lot right. of employers don't realize, I don't right. think. And, and, if the, and if the manufacturer is offering a special deal like that, it may not last forever, but if it's going to last for six months or a year, why not ask your pharmacist at the point of service, at the counter, and say, hey, are, is there, is there a, a manufacturer coupon going on or something like that? I used to be able to get this drug for $8. Yeah, I think that is a wonderful point. Yeah, so there are a couple of discounted-based cards that are out there that have set, put together select programs with retailers that not only um, allow for what you described at a single retailer, but really kind of wraps them all together, almost like its own mini discount network. And all of those claims do fall outside the program, but were aided again by a little bit of um, changes in the law where this anti-gag clause has been removed by pharmacists. And now they're free to talk about that. Okay. So I think your, your suggestion of asking the right question at the point of service and an employer educating their employees, hey, you know what? This program is designed to, to provide for the lowest cost access of generics, but every retailer is different and any of their programs are different. So this is building more consumerism into the benefit and taking advantage of those. And yeah, you might not see that claims that claim come in on your transaction, but at this rate, the pharmacy systems have those claims in there. There is a level of drug utilization review going on, and the the, the winners in this ultimately are the members that might have access right. to lower cost medications. And I think that's it's important that people realize that that is an option that's out there that people just aren't aware of. So. Don't be afraid to ask the pharmacist if, if there's a, a drug manufacturer's coupon or something available because, again, the right. plan could save money. You could save money. Everyone saves money, so everyone's happy. Uh, let me ask you about um, basically the, the supply chain. Uh, the pharmacy supply chain is, is – there's a lot of links. There's a lot of different yes. layers there. Yes. And a lot of people say that with the manufacturers, the wholesalers, the PBMs, the physicians in the hospitals, the mail-order pharmacy, that there's, there are too many layers. <laughs> so can you comment on this and if there's something that can be done to reduce the number of layers so that maybe we can keep the cost down on the administrative side, which will bring the overall cost of the drug down? Yeah, that there, there, there's a lot of pressure on that supply chain, uh, but because of all the middlemen and quite frankly, the protection of, uh, of pricing disclosure or the lack of transparency on those points. And because we're talking about volume, you know, there is a lot of, in essence, middlemen that are that are that are winning in that distribution process, correct? You know, the dynamics really um, I think what we've found is because of market consolidation, um, at least for example, on the retailer side and on the wholesaler side. They're, they're really fundamentally providing a function that I don't think you can take one step further and eliminate and vertically integrate. I do think you start to run into antitrust issues okay. at that point because our market is consolidated. But because of that, the ability for good pricing pressure is starting to reduce a bit in those fields. You know, the big chains are kind of got their stakes and the big wholesalers have had their stakes. And, and you aren't seeing kind of that price pressure on that side of it, which leads me back to the PBM agreements. The idea of updating those and looking at those more frequently is the only way you're going to wring out that excess. Um, but I agree with you, there are a lot of hands in the middle. Yeah, yeah. So what makes one PBM better than another? You know, I think that is so 
uh, tailored to the type of group you are or the type of groups you're supporting in terms of uh, um, whether you're an employer or a third-party administrator. The, the more complicated your benefit is because you're trying to do unique things, the more careful you have to be about the type of PBM that you're working with. Um, the larger the PBM, the more uh, likely it is that you're going to be uh, you're going to have a more difficult time having that benefit coded or customized in the way you want it. Likewise, if you're a small PBM and you don't own that claim system, you may not be able to code it the way it needs to be done. So you really have to be careful about the type of plan. If you have a more vanilla plan, um, maybe you're looking at scale. You know, simple, high touch, low touch plan. Okay. Then, then really, you can go big and okay. and go for the go for that lower cost. And let's and let's break this down because it just dawned on me that some people might not know what PBM really what it stands for. Yeah. <laughs> Pharmacy benefit managers. Those sure. are what the. Well, you might want to explain that better than I do. I can. <laughs> sure. So, so really, there is an intermediary between someone receiving their prescription drug from the pharmacist and having their insurance pay for it. And in essence, like a credit card company, a pharmacy benefit manager processes a transaction very similarly. Right. Your card has a certain set of codes that talk to your insurance company. And um, because that particular pharmacy is a retailer, they answer in a network where they've pre-negotiated lower pricing on those drugs. Thank you. Thank you for that clarification. Sure. Uh, what types of cost containment options should health plans, uh, particularly self-funded employers, what should they be looking for to offer um, cost savings? Yeah, so, you know, the other side of it is we talked about making smart shoppers on the generic side. You know, um, I think um, the, the employers also need to be looking at how can we help people with the super expensive drugs, right? Mm -hmm. And putting and encouraging utilization on uh, of different sorts of assistance that may be available from the manufacturers because the manufacturers want access to the market okay mm -hmm. and their biggest fear are health are health plans that are extraordinarily high with high deductibles um, they, they really don't like those because that can keep somebody from taking one of their medications, right? Mm -hmm. Likewise, employers like it because they, they feel like this is their only alternative to create some consumerism, and really it's the one tool they have to create further cost sharing. But we're at the upper end of that now when you talk about affordability, even with cost shares. Now we're seeing $5,000 high deductible you know, de, you know, plans and right. out-of-pocket maxes that are close to the 20s and thousands, and that's getting access to you know, to the point where it's very difficult to get a drug and afford that drug. So the manufacturers have stepped in and said, you know what, we've got some coupon assistance on the specialty side. And some of this has been very well formalized, formalized, I should say, or these programs have been developed at the PBMs, especially in the specialty pharmacy yes, side. That's one, one area that obviously, if, you've, if you have cancer or you have some sort of condition like that, that you're, you, you have to take a specialty drug. Um, that's that's devastating to a lot of people. Oh, it's, it's, there, there's just no way they can afford it, especially if they have a ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollar out of pocket maximum. And yeah. sometimes the out of pocket maximums don't even include the prescription drug copays. Right. Um, so quite often, actually. So right. it's 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 difficult. It's difficult. So they should be looking for those things like we were talking about before. Yeah. Those drug. <coughs> I think I think really it comes down coupons and so forth. Yeah, I really think that the, the PBMs have these really wonderful specialty assistance programs that are under okay. development. But again, that 
that's the type of questions you, when you talk about the best BBM. If you have a population loaded with specialty, uh-huh. you know, users, and you feel like you're almost at risk, you know, as an employer of even maintaining the integrity of your program because of these specialty claims, you really need to be looking at what types of resources that the that the PBM offers. Secondarily, there's been the emergence of companies that freestanding entities that have other other means to try and reduce these costs. Okay. Um, where they'll assist with enrollment and they'll assist with, you know, representing um, this employee to the manufacturers for additional assistance. Many times those approaches are built on income means, Mm -hmm. you know, and the threshold, the tipping point is a single person making under $70,000. There may be under the specialty realm an opportunity to get some assistance. And $70,000 in some states... You know, that's that's a lot of money. Some states, other states, like, for example, in Southern California, making $70,000, that's almost poverty level to some people in California. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. There's, there's that seven, whatever that dollar amount right. is, it, it's, it, I think they should take a look at the fact of where are the demographics here and where are, where, right. what does that dollar amount mean? Because, yeah. like I said, it, that buys a lot in, in, in some areas and that buys almost nothing in other areas. Exactly. And the manufacturers have all of that information somewhat indexed. Okay. And so... If you're a, a family making 120,000, but you have through three, four dependents, all of a sudden that starts to fall right. into the into the assistance category. Right. So it's more than you might think, and it's definitely worth looking at. Okay. And there are a couple of strategies there that involve just straight copay assistance, and others where they've literally gone in the menu to the employers and said, you know, with some um, reclassifications and resubmissions of your SPDs we may be able to represent the full value of that cost for reimbursement. So that's something that uh, an employer could look at when they're talking to their administrator and having their broker talk to them when they're looking for a prescription drug program and a PBM to manage that. They should be asking about those types of things. That's one question that they probably don't think and don't know that they could be asking. But again, if they have a high population with specialty drug needs, um, that that would make a huge difference, I think, to a plan. So it I could. think it's really good, valuable information. Well, we're almost out of time here, so I do want to ask one more question. Let's talk a little bit about rebates. We heard we hear about rebates all the time. Um, pharmace- pharmaceutical companies give them to doctors to prescribe their drugs. <laughs> Sometimes, <laughs> when there are a lot less expensive drugs out there, um, and more recently, we're starting to see rebates going back to uh, the t- third-party administrator or back to the employer or whatever. Um, who figures out where those rebates are going and how many levels of those can happen. And, and uh, if it is going to the third-party administrator, um, I think some employers get upset when they hear about that because, wait a minute, that's my money that's being spent on those drugs. Why are the administrators getting the rebates on those? Yes. So is that something that you could comment on a little bit? Sure. What, yeah. So it was one thing about four to five years ago when the rebate levels were – you know, a dollar to two dollars on right. average per prescription, and and third-party administrators legitimately need some level of cost offsets for managing eligibility, working through the complexities. Right. They can't and, charge uh, enough. I think I don't think yeah. people realize. I think people realize that I used to be in the third-party administration business. I ran a TPA for twelve years, and you can't possibly make enough income charging administrative fees to cover right. all of the costs involved with administration. Sure. I think right. I, I want to say that to be very fair. I want to say right. that right up front. Right, but I will say that over the course of the 
because of the manufacturer drug inflation, mm -hmm. correspondingly, the rebate levels have gone up significantly. There have been a couple of dynamics that have been working uh, negatively in that respect to the plan sponsors that many times the TPAs unknowingly who've been retaining the rebates are seeing these 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 year-over-year -year increases to the degree where Leaf Health is receiving calls saying, hey, this isn't the intent of what we were trying to do here. We're trying to do some administrative cost offsets. And so the first question is, is to have a frank conversation on what's happening with those rebates and ensuring that the employer is getting the value of those right. rebates. And I think they should be split between the administrator and the and the sure. and, and the employer. I think that they should but they should be disclosed up front so people sure. can see uh, what's what what kind of money they're talking about. I mean, sometimes it's buried into contracts that we may receive a rebate, which sounds like it might be a few bucks, and then it turns out later you find out that they received, oh, $50,000 or whatever it is, okay. rebates yes. or something. Obviously, that money could have been sure. well spent in the health plan. Sure. So I think that's where people get a little upset. So I think that's a conversation that that uh, employers uh, need to have with their brokers and consultants, and the brokers and consultants need to, you know, talk to the TPAs about that, and the three of you guys, three of the parties maybe get together in a room and say, if there are rebates happening here, um, how are we going to split this? Exactly. We don't need 100%, you don't need 100%, let's make a split on this, or do sure. something that's fair and equitable for everyone. Absolutely. Maybe Maybe we take a higher percentage, you take a higher administrative fee, or vice versa, or whatever, but... We need to know what those are so that, that they could be aware of it. I mean, like I said, a lot of employers don't even realize sometimes that those are, those are out there. I know we've, we've actually started receiving, not us, not our company, but some of our clients have recently started to receive um, rebates themselves for the first time because we brought this up to the TPA and yes. we said, hey, you know, we need to, this, the employer would like a piece of that money back because that's their money that's being spent in the first place. Oh, we completely agree, and I think that's a very proactive stance uh, for advising your clients. Uh, we, 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 we agree with you. The full disclosure is the most important piece at the PBM level and at the TPA level, and everyone can agree that there's value that each party is bringing to the table, and then ultimately there's a frank negotiation on what that value is. And, and I think also that people, you know, they want to maintain a good relationship maybe with their administrator. I mean, they've done a great job for them, let's say. Um, so they don't want to rock the boat, so they're afraid to say something, but on the other hand, they don't want to miss out on money that could be coming back to the plan. So I think you're right. I think it needs to be absolutely upfront disclosure, full disclosure, and let's just figure it out. Let's just say, okay, let's say if whatever, maybe it's a 50-50 split, whatever the sure. case might be. Yeah. Um, maybe it's a 70-30 split, whatever it is, whatever sure. that both parties agree to. Yeah, well, I think what's happened... Put it on the table. <laughs> exactly. And what's happened, too, is there's a higher awareness ever since um, the EpiPen incident right. where people said, well, wait a minute, that's $600 in manufacturing. No, it's really 200 and there's rebates involved. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, this this greater awareness, uh, and again, actions by the by the current administration, basically saying, maybe we don't need these rebates because the value is not actually making it to the member. Yeah. And because of the high deductible plans, rebates could really aid in a member meet, meeting those costs. And the agreements fundamentally aren't typically structured that way, yeah. but we're definitely seeing a trend towards that. And that's another option for plan sponsors to look at and say, can we carve some of these rebates and this value and get it to the member right. too? Right. So that's that's something we're working on at LEAF is determining how creatively can we take care of the needs of the plan sponsors, the TPAs, but also more importantly, the member. Right. I agree. All right. Well, we're about out of time here, so I wanted to say thank you very much thank for you. taking Appreciate part it. in this podcast today, and this has been very, very valuable information, and uh, thanks again. Thank you so much. Right. Thanks for listening. 
Stay tuned for compliance tips, cost containment ideas, new trends, and decision-making tools. This podcast is produced by Advanced Benefit Consulting, Anaheim, California. All views expressed are those of the host or interviewees and not necessarily those of Advanced Benefit Consulting. Information contained herein should not be construed as legal advice. We always recommend that you consult with your legal counsel as situations do vary. Ms. Koshu can be reached at 714-693-9754, extension 3. Toll free at 866-658-3835 or visit our website at advancedbenefitconsulting.com.